Welcome to Tech in Color, a show dedicated to spotlighting diverse stories of leaders in tech and business and their journey in getting to where they are today. I'm Monsi. And I'm Michelle. We're thrilled to be joined today by Soraya Darabi. Soraya is a general partner and founder of TMV, an early stage venture firm investing in purposeful startups reimagining the future. She's had a whirlwind of a career, from managing digital partnerships and social media at the New York Times, to founding companies like Food Spotting, to being on the board of directors for the nonprofit Yamba Malawi. Soraya graduated with honors from Georgetown University and also studied at Harvard Kennedy School. Soraya, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, ladies, so much for having me. Let's start with your background. Could you walk us through your upbringing and were there any formative experiences that shaped you throughout high school and college? Well, I was born on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. My mother was teaching at Columbia University at the time. She taught public health back then. And my father was a poet and a cab driver in New York City. Um, And so I had a really colorful upbringing. We had a house that was really as bohemian and as Upper West Side as you can imagine. Picture a Woody Allen film. pre-Woody Allen controversy. So, you know, it was full of wonderful people coming in and out, potlucks, um, political dialogue and conversation. And there was a lot of warmth to my home growing up. Um, And then with that, on the weekends, we'd go and visit my grandparents who retired early and they opened up a wine vineyard in New Jersey. And so there I was exposed to a different type of life. Um, My grandfather's former clients from Japan would come and he'd do these big barbecues. And in the summer we would pick grapes. Um, and we'd, you know, hike in on their acreage and and explore the woods. So I I feel so fortunate to have had a really sort of unique upbringing where it was a little bit city mouse, a little bit country mouse, but the the unique sort of uh, line throughout was that my family loved entertaining and loved having conversations with people. As a result, flash forward all the way now, I'm 37 years old. I, I think that loving great conversations is still paramount to who I am and to the work that I do as an investor. Um, So that's what stands out for me. Uh, Just, you know, engaging with worldly people and constantly feeling like I was in a state of curiosity. Um, And then everything else is sort of on the resume. I went to high school in Minnesota, uh, a really terrific high school called the Blake School, which has produced some amazing entrepreneurs. Um, I was fortunate to study at Georgetown as an undergrad where I met my now business partner, Marina, uh, when we were studying abroad in Italy. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I had some really terrific jobs um, after school that paved the way for me to first become an entrepreneur and, and then to work in venture. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. And on your point of, you know, really enjoying having meaningful conversations, I think that kind of foreshadows not only TMV, but also your work as host of the Business School podcast, which we'll get into later. Talking about the start of your career, you began your career as manager of digital partnerships and social media at the New York Times. And you also co-founded the application Food Spotting, which was named by Apple and Wired as an app of the year and was also later acquired by OpenTable and then Priceline. Can you tell us about these experiences in your early career and how you went about them and also how they shaped your later interests? Absolutely. So um, I uh, 
uh, studied journalism at Georgetown and was fortunate to be hired at Condé Net. I think it's called Condé Nast Digital now, um, whereby I was working in uh, communications and marketing, focused initially on helping Condé Net um, communicate internally what the acquisition of Reddit was all about. That was the first press release I worked for. Um, we sent that press release out that I drafted on Halloween 2006. And that really kicked off my intrinsic interest in tech and my relationships in the tech world, because as a byproduct of that, the three Reddit founders walked into our office, um, invited me to the Reddit launch party when Condé was celebrating that acquisition. And the world was filled, at least for me, and that world being that one room with um, my heroes, um, you know, but they were all young men in hoodies. They're all white young men and their investors were all older white men in hoodies. Hoodies basically become Patagonia vests at a certain point in time. And I was disenchanted by the lack of people like me in the room. And so I asked those founders, all of whom um, are and were very nice, you know, what is it that I'm missing? What do I don't know? And, and they explained to me back then how much of this industry is predicated on relationships. So I recognized, okay, it's, it's time to go out there and, and network. The New York Times hired me two years later to be their first manager of social media. But back then we called it in the beginning, buzz marketing. It wasn't until we were testing Twitter and beta, I think that we changed my title. And what a dream job that was to work with journalists who have won Pulitzer Prizes, teaching them literally how to text and then tweet. Um, but inversely, also working with strategy teams, corp dev teams, sales departments on how do we communicate to a next generation reader? I grew up, as I mentioned, in New York, and so the New York Times remains my favorite brand in the world. Um, and I think the coolest part about that job, speaking of relationships, is that almost every single person who walks through that building is brilliant. Um, so I you know, soaked it all in and met as many interesting people as I absolutely could. And then I left the New York Times to join a friend's cloud computing startup in Dumbo, Brooklyn. Um, this was a really magical time to be in tech in New York. It's when um, in that actual office, startups like Birchbox and Venmo got off the ground just to put it in a time and a place. Uh, and interestingly, the co-founder of that startup, whom I met when I was interviewing um, by playing beer pong with him at an after hours party, uh, he's now our venture partner at TMB. His name is Darshan and he's a dear friend. Um, and so I worked there after the New York Times and a lot of people were really confused as to why I'd leave this gorgeous ivory tower, glass tower, literally building um, to work for startups. And for me, it felt intuitive. It just felt like the way the world was moving. But for making that decision, I think I garnered some media attention. Um, not I think, I did. Um, so I ended up doing an interview for Fast Company's Most Creative People in Business issue per that decision, and it ended up being the cover story. So here I am, 26 years old, on the cover of an international business magazine, and then another business magazine cover followed uh, because of the first, and media has a, a way of doing that. You know, once you start getting media attention, you can't really stop, and that followed with a year stint on ABC News, uh, periodically talking about technology and trends and forecasting. ABC was generous enough to hire a media trainer for me and to pay for my public speaking lessons. Um, and before I knew it, the first startup sold to Facebook, no thanks to me at all. Um, the founders were brilliant in that instance, but it showed me how you can go from literal idea on a napkin to beer pong parties, to uh, MOUs, to LOIs, to your company belonging to a much larger tech business. And I saw the parallels between what happened at that company and what happened for the Reddit guys. 
And I thought, okay, it's time that I tried my, my hand at this. So I joined food spotting as a co-founder, the original founders, um, uh, absolutely brilliant, uh, came up with the idea, but I was advising them first and then joined to help them raise that seed round. And we were successful. We raised a series a after that, um, and then ultimately sold that business to open table. Um, and then a year and a half later, Priceline bought open table with these liquidity events that I'm describing, I was fortunate enough to become an angel investor. And so I'll pause right there. It's a mouthful, but when you ask, you know, how did you kind of move from first college student into media, into technology, into investing, the long and the short of it was being at the right place at the right time, but carrying with me that intrinsic curiosity. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, Incredible to hear about how your focus on developing relations early on kind of carried with you and a lot of the people and connections that you made earlier in your career still remained valuable later on as you moved into these different industries. And we're about to get into your current career at TMB, where you're a general partner and founder. But before we get to that, I can imagine a very difficult balance to strike is knowing when it's time to exit a company, especially your own startup. How do you know when it's time to move on from a company, especially one that you founded? Well, um, I think that when we talk about founding startups, we talk a lot about the dream and, and we, we celebrate and we almost glorify too much the founding process. Like here we were in the garage and, and Jobs and Woz were tinkering an idea and they thought, okay, we should call it the Lisa. I mean, that's a fake story, but that's what people usually describe when they talk about the beginning of a company. I'm so grateful that people like Scott Belsky have gone on to write best-selling business books like The Messy Middle, because The Messy Middle, that awkward teenage phase where you think you're onto something, but you have to tinker, iterate, maybe you have the right team, maybe you don't have the right team, or you have to ask yourself, if you don't have hubris, am I really the right person to be leading this company? Are there people more clever than I, stronger than I that could step in and run this better? That, that is what startups are all about. And I wish there was more literature and, um, and more attention paid to, well, once you have some initial traction, how do you move it into velocity mode? So I think the answer to your question is to be very honest with oneself. Um, and to do some real work with coaches or by reading great books. I recommend True North by Bill George. I recommend Designing Your Life, which is by two Stanford design school professors. Um, but doing honest work with yourself to understand what are you singular at? What makes you really special? And do you want to double and triple down on that to become the best in your field at that singular skill set? In which case, you're a terrific operator, potentially even a terrific founder and almost irreplaceable if your startup will always need that one skill? Or are you a generalist? In which case, it's okay to say to yourself, you know what, I've reached my peak, I've done all that I can to take the startup from zero to one, and it's time for me to move on. And I really respect people who make that decision. I think there are some super smart folks who've been public about those decisions. Um, and I often will find myself on Twitter or whatnot commending them for it because you know, nobody taught them early on, it's okay to walk away. And I'm not saying become a quitter. If anything, as a VC, I look for founders that persevere as the number one trait um, that determines whether or not we'd like to invest in them. But I certainly feel as though it's important to know your own limits. 
Thank you for all of that advice. And the reflection you mentioned about knowing when it's time to walk away and distinguishing that from, you know, quitting um, is a really important conversation to have. And that's very helpful. We also definitely agree that a lot of the coverage of startups seems to just skip over that messy middle and go directly to the flashy acquisition or the flashy IPO. So it's definitely true that there needs to be more discussion about what happens in between. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Now you're also um, general partner and founder at TMV, where you are investing in many er of these early stage companies. So you mentioned that some, some of the things that you look at when you're deciding who to invest in, but for you, what made you decide to go from founding a startup at the beginning of your career to helping other founders with their startup ideas? Um, well, TMV began 15 years ago. My business partner, Marina, and I decided that we wanted to partner with other founder operators who believed, as we do, that purpose-driven companies aren't just good for marketing, it's good for business. And 77% of the time in fund one, 25 companies in our first fund, we invested in businesses that had women and or minorities at the helm. And again, this is not something we put on our website until recently, because we don't believe in having this specific diversity mandate, although certainly it's wonderful when people do. We thought it would be very cool and very different to invest, quote unquote, in the way the world truly looks, that's on our website, by looking at census data and making sure that our pipeline was full of founders from all walks of life, socioeconomic status, geography, immigrants, non-immigrants, um, non-obvious geographies, obvious geographies, and to invest in companies that were trying to do something to make the world a better place. All four of the startups that help us get pizza faster, I'm a big fan of one in particular, um, but that's not what we invest in at TMV. We invest in companies like Ridwell, which uh, helps people recycle better and faster based out of Seattle. We invest in companies like Kindbody, which help women who want to uh, preserve their fertility and have children later in life uh, do so in an affordable way. We work with companies like Parsley Health, which is uh, primary care coupled with nutrition, entirely rooted in science. We work with companies um, like Gooder, uh, which is based in Atlanta, Georgia, focusing on using uh, blockchain technology and logistics to help reduce food waste and food and provide food security at the same time. So all of this is to say, we like businesses that fall into one of five sectors, tech-enabled sustainable solutions, the future of work, modern medicine, so we call that the care economy, um, businesses that touch education, technology, in some way, shape, or form, and modern mobility. And if you are a founder that is building a purpose-driven company in one of those domains, then we at TMV, now out of our second fund, it's a $60 million fund, uh, we will lead your seed round um, and occasionally invest in your Series A. Um, we've leveled up over the past five years. And so now we're not just writing complimentary investment checks, we're leading rounds. And it has been a joy to work with my four partners. Um, they are some of the smartest people I've ever met. And it is so fun to be on this side of the fence as a coach um, and I guess sometimes a player. Yeah, that's amazing to hear about how all of these past experiences you had as a founder also guided you into being better at investing in startups as well. Um, especially at this early stage, companies must always be pivoting and expanding. Um, and you mentioned this as well about how your role at TMV involves mentoring investments um, even after investing funds in them. How does TMV continue to do that? We believe in capital plus counsel at TMV. 
Uh, I mentioned that all of our partners, uh, and I'll detail their backgrounds in a moment, have operational expertise, and every partner who joins us will always have operational expertise. Um, there are incredible quants out there who are professional investors, uh, you know, the Wharton on Wharton set, as I call them. Uh, and honestly, they can probably run laps around me with term sheets, and, and some of them are much better investors than we. But at TMV, the point for us is to make sure that our founders feel supported um, and that they have investors who have high level of compassion for the risk that they're putting on the line. So um, in that instance, you know, Darshan, our partner who, for whom I worked once upon a time, he went on to start Imagine, Imagine Easy Solutions, which created EasyBib, the world's, I believe, fastest growing and largest online bibliography. He sold that to Chegg um, for tens of millions, having never raised a penny of venture. Our partner, Evan, has sold two companies by the time he's 30, most recently um, a company called Swift Media, which he sold to Monotype. It's publicly listed on NASDAQ. Um, and he is just a consumer, mobile, and honestly, customer acquisition whiz. His new company, Mavely, is one that we proudly invested in at TMV. And then you have on our team, uh, Julia, who ran a $100 million PL for General Motors and is, uh, has an extremely impressive mobility and, and, and less mile transportation background, which is coupled with Marina, my business partner, who is one of the only women in the world to take a maritime business public. She raised $135 million to take Dorian LPG public on the New York Stock Exchange with her family. The company was started by her father and grandmother. Um, Marina has lived on a ship. She has her Able Seamen's Merchant Marines license. Um, so she looks at anything that touches, you know, the vast universe that is maritime logistics supply chain. And so we see such interesting deals. The next Flexport, for instance, um, will be for maritime. And we see that through Marina. And then there's me with the background we just described. And so, um, you know, how does TMV work and how do we add value? Uh, we lead rounds, so we write substantial checks, um, we take board seats, we um, immediately work with our amazing chief creative officer, Sean, who was the former design director for Rolling Stone, um, to redo the websites and redo decks for founders, sometimes even founders we don't currently work with, just so they can see how we think through design and product iteration. Um, we recruit for their companies. Uh, I'm proud that an introduction we made for CityBlock Health then yielded an additional 40 members of their team. Um, similarly, we helped Parsley Health and Henry the Dentist hire their first employees. Uh, we become references for the founders with people who are interested in joining their company and working for their company. Um, from a marketing standpoint, we co-own a growth marketing agency. And so we'll do like an audit for these companies and help them understand how to acquire customers uh, swiftly and affordably. We raise capital for them. And so for over half of our companies, we were the introduction that um, brought in one or more of their next round institutional series A leads. And so on and so on and so on. And so we, we don't really stop. Um, that was a long rambling list on purpose because you know startups are Sisyphusian. There's an endless amount of work to do. And for us at TMV, we want to roll up our sleeves and be part of that work. And that's what differentiates us from other firms. I definitely agree. I think the commitment to really wanting to get involved and support these founders on their journeys is a really important trait. It's also very impressive to hear about the diverse background of all the different people on your team and how you all have your own areas of expertise that you're investing in. Could you also discuss the process of raising your first fund since the emphasis of TMV on investing in companies that are trying to make an impact in the world is unfortunately not a focus of many of the other venture firms that probably existed at the time? 
Absolutely. When we began in 2015, there weren't any female founded funds uh, outside of New York that we could point to. BBG existed, Female Founders Fund literally existed. Um, but it was really hard to find other firms to point to and be like, oh, those are our role models because the women I just mentioned were our peers. They were also raising their first funds uh, around the same time as we, although Anna was first with FFF. I think she was three years before we. So we needed mentors and we couldn't find them. And that that started off the fundraising bit with a, a little bit of a challenge. I went to a lot of um, GP friends of mine, men who worked for um, top Sandhill uh, funds and they were kind enough to be some of our earliest believers and, and investors. Um, we brought on our first advisor that was Adam Grant, who teaches at Wharton. He's a best selling author um, of the book Originals and Give and Take. And so Adam was um, so instrumental and so helpful and in, in guiding us through um, some of the earliest conversations. But the first fund was painful to raise. It's supposed to take you uh, 16 months to raise your first month fund, maybe 18 months. Um, but I believe for women and people of color, um, it'll take two years minimum because the world is inherently biased. And if we don't know that going into the fundraise, it can feel incredibly defeating. Um, despite a track record of a 172% realized IRR on angel investments and SPVs, I didn't have the easiest time convincing folks that we could manage their money successfully. And that to me makes me smile now because the second fundraise was so much faster and so much swifter. We, we pointed to data and that's why we're fortunate now that Bank of America has, has put many millions into our fund and, and put out a press release to say as much. And we have an institutional anchor for fund two and we work now with global family offices and RIA platforms. But for fund one, we didn't know any of those people I just mentioned. And so it was really about going around and knocking door on door and saying um, to our friends who were in the tech world with demonstrable exits, do you know of anyone who would want to believe in us? And some people are comfortable asking their friends to take a meeting with uh, a fund manager looking for capital and other people feel like that's gauche. And so you have to become really comfortable if you want to raise a fund in the idea that you are one part salesperson, one part collection agent, and one part talent. So the talent side of you thinks one should be so lucky as to work with us because we see this amazing deal flow and these are the deals that everybody wishes they would come into. You know, our team, we've, we've backed six unicorns. And then on the other hand, um, there's a part of you that has to really put on a framework hat. And, and because of my product background, that's where I felt most comfortable. And raising a fund for us the first time, if I'm being very honest, was about putting systems in place to make the entire experience less daunting. Now, over the past five years, um, we have gone on to create one of the largest uh, clubhouses for women fund managers, which I can talk about in the future. We're, we're going public with that next week to level the playing field for us and to um, make it easier for women who have funds in particular to find community and solace in one another. And I'm so proud of this community that we created um, because I know that for that next generation of women who want to do what we're doing, the entire experience will feel less daunting. Uh, we heard about the recent Bank of America partnership. So exciting. Huge congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, and we've also seen so many statistics before of like how much more difficult it is for diverse founders of funds to raise funds. So thank you for trailblazing and being one of the first uh, to make the path easier for future founders as well.
Thank you for saying that. And, and that's why the original name of our fund was Trail Mix Ventures before we called it TMV, because we felt like trailblazers and we only wanted to invest in trailblazers. So high compliment coming from you. Thank you. No, thank you. And like we've been talking about, TMV is a female-led fund with a portfolio that's 65% woman and minority owned. What does impact investing broadly mean to you? And on a higher level, what role do you think it plays in building a more inclusive industry? That's a really thoughtful question. On the one hand, I sometimes shiver when I hear diversity mandates or diversity investment lenses, uh, plural, being equated to impact investing, because even though I know it is impactful to give uh, women and people of color capital, sometimes I worry that when we clump that into the category of impact, then we're doing a disservice to the genre as a whole, because honestly, we think it's simply good for business in having a diverse portfolio, period, full stop. In our first fund, the first unicorn that we had to point to, City Block Health, is one of only two companies in the world that has an African-American woman at the helm of a unicorn. So, um, you know, if you look at any company that's venture-backed, valued at over a billion, in the whole wide world, you'll find only two women, Dr. Toyana Jai of City Block, who's wonderful, magnificent, and an inspiration to me. And you have Julia Collins at Zoom Pizza. And, and, and Dr. Ajayi was the per person who actually told me that statistic, so credit to her for that. And when she told me, I had to ask her to repeat that number. I said, two? And she said, two. So anybody now would be so lucky as to be able to find themselves with an allocation in City Block Health. And I'm very proud of TMV for being an early believer. But at the same time, by virtue of the fact that it's run by an African-American woman, must we call it an impact investment? This is where I start to feel a little conflicted. Now, zooming out a bit, that company, this phenomenal company absolutely is impactful. They service inner city communities, low-income neighborhoods, with um, premium and high access healthcare. And they're basically creating through insurance relationships and Medicare, an opportunity for everyone to be treated whole um, as they are looking for um, you know, a 360 primary care providers. But when you put City Block into the bucket of impact, there is an entirely different group of investors who will then say, oh wait, but if it has double or triple bottom lines, does that mean that it's any less as exciting for me as an Uber? And the answer is no, it's not. So we have to, as an industry, kind of recreate the social guidelines around what we call impactful, uh, around diversity mandates. I think we have to actually create equal opportunity uh, legislature at a, at, a, at a government level to make sure that women and people of color are getting funded not you know, disproportionately, disproportionately to one another. And this is going to be a huge challenge. I think funding for women um, went down last year, uh, despite for the past five years, that famous statistic that women receive only 2.2% of all venture financing. Everyone was posting that statistic and signing pledges. We're going to change the industry. The people signing those pledges were at very, very big venture capital funds. And yet there's no reconnaissance. Nobody's going back to those pledges and saying, for those who signed it, what changed for them the next year? Because globally, the numbers decreased. And so I think there needs to be more detective work done in our industry, um, not to shame anybody, 
but to shine a light on how, you know, media attention is not enough. Um, we need to actually be more proactive institutionalizing what socially responsible investing looks like. You brought up a lot of very nuanced points that are interesting. I think one of them was that the notion of naming something impact investing can miss the rationale of investing in a business as something solely because of, di of a diversity mandate, when in fact the business is you know, objectively doing something great for the world and is objectively a very good business to invest exactly. in. Yeah. And I think the second that was really interesting was that you mentioned how people were sharing lots of statistics around, you know, women founders having a hard time getting funding and things like that, yet they're not being real change that materializes as a result of that. And so um, I think those are two very like insightful points that you brought up. Oh, thank you for recapping it eloquently and much more succinctly, because I can tend to ramble on when I talk about something I'm passionate about, but I really am passionate about this industry changing and being part of that change. And I know the two of you will be too. Yeah, thank you. And uh, going off of that, um, can you discuss kind of your vision for where you hope to go with TMV in terms of making these impacts? And also, you mentioned this before, but also how you think the venture capital industry might need to change and continue institutionalizing these processes for more thoughtful investing? Well, I think to create um, a ripple effect and to make meaningful change in our industry, it's almost like venture capital needs a board of directors. <laughs> and the industry needs, you know, five examples and very diverse examples of people to whom they can look up to to make decisions for us all. Because right now that board of directors is the Twitter echo chamber. And that's not healthy. The people who I see posting the most about VC and what VC means, uh, those spectators, I don't see them actually as the same folks I know uh, for instance, starting their own funds and running their funds 24-7 and, and hustling to be able to put food on the table for their families. Because there's very little difference when you're raising your first fund um, between that and starting a startup. And I hope that there's more empathy. I'm not asking for people to feel sympathy for VCs, boo-hoo you, but there should be compassion for the experience of starting your own fund when you aren't spinning out of a large institution with the backing of that institution. It is uh, a slog and it is challenging and it's, it's all exactly the same as the founder experience. You have to create team culture, you have to uh, punch above your weight, you have to um, believe in yourself when nobody else does, etc. So my hope for the future is that um, through the group that I'm founding for women and through um, more information that's publicly shared, um, Operator does a good job of this, uh, CV Insights does a wonderful job of this. PitchBook is doing terrific reports. Some of the banks like First Republic Bank are putting out a lot of really interesting reports around um, diversity and inclusion in, in the venture world. But my hope is as this information becomes uh, public domain and widespread, we can then figure out a way to have a conversation that doesn't sound like it's um, stemming from a place of insecurity, but a conversation of openness that says, how do we work together to make demonstrable change? So in my opinion, the answer is um, in, in government rulings. In California, if you want to be a publicly traded company, you must have at least one woman on the board. I think that's a great first step, but it occurred to me, well, if we're gonna go that far, why not say half the board? Women are 51% of the workforce. That was as of 2020, January, Wall Street Journal data. So if we're half of the workforce, and by the way, we're now earning more proportionately across the country than men. 
So if we're also the breadwinners, then why are we not 50% of the boards of companies? And women are more than 50% of consumers in America. Women are marketing multipliers, according to Forrester. And I think in terms of customers, uh, by and large, dollar for dollar, we're upwards of 60% of consumers. So here we are, the clients and the operators, and yet we aren't the board controllers. For me, that's a systemic issue. And maybe now that we have a female VP, things are going to start to change. Yeah, the statistics you mentioned about women being breadwinners um, and also that the rule in California, I didn't know that before. That's really interesting. And it's it's surprising to me that that is not more widespread um, in, in other states besides California. But I also think that your point about the government needing to do something about this is really interesting because I feel like so far they haven't, but hopefully that does change as there are also more women and more diversity in Congress. We'll, we'll see some of that change, hopefully. Yes, I, I completely agree. I hope so too. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, Soraya. Um, as we wrap up, we would love to go through a quick fire round to just get to know you a little bit, even outside of your career. Is that okay? Yeah, that sounds fun. So first question, what is your favorite hobby? What do you do to unwind? I cook. I cook dinner every night. A lot of people don't know this about me, but, um, but yes, I, I cook dinner at least five times, six times a week um, at minimum. I'm trying a lot of French recipes because my in-laws are French and I want to impress them one day. Um, so most recently I made a coco bun. That is very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next question is, what is the best advice you've ever received? Uh, my mother always says everything feels better in the morning. And then my business take on that is if you're going to send an email that intimidates you in any way, sleep on it and send it in the morning instead. If you could choose three people dead or alive that you could get dinner with, who would you choose? Oh, I love that. Uh, I would invite, uh, Oscar Wilde. Uh, I'm obsessed with the play, the three trials of Oscar Wilde by Kaufman. I think it's I think he had such a fascinating life. And so I'd love to talk to him about those trials. He was on trial for being gay. Um, and I think he's just so poignant. It's one of the best writers of all time. Uh, I would alive ask Terry Gross of NPR to join me at that dinner party. Um, she's on Fresh Air. Of course, she has her own podcast. But speaking of somebody who asks brilliant questions, she's, she's the master of the game. I would love to learn from her. And... I like a lot of filmmakers. Uh, I like Kirostami. I like Peter Bogdanovich. Um, I like, um, I'm a movie buff. So yeah, maybe, maybe one of those directors as well. That sounds like a very powerful dinner. And I feel like with <laughs> a very, very interesting conversation too. Thank you. Yeah, I'll have to listen to more of uh, Terry Gross. And I've also always wanted to read Oscar Wilde. Um, on that note, what is your favorite book? I have so many books. I love to read so many favorite books. Um, I love a collection of short stories by Nella Larson. She was a novelist and essayist um, during the Harlem Renaissance, which is one of my favorite periods of literature. Um, I love the book Drown by Juan Odias. Um, also short stories, but more modern um, about growing up in New Jersey as an immigrant. And um, I don't know. I feel like every time I read a book, it's my favorite book, but let's start. Well, let's just stop with those two. That's fiction. And then in terms of nonfiction, um, I mentioned a couple of the, the business books I liked earlier. I also like a nonfiction book that's sort of about something that you think would be non-work related, but it can apply to work. Uh, what I think about when I think about running, 
Um, and I think that uh, even though the book is about running and, and commitment to a craft, it's a memoir, but it's also really about mindset and how we can apply our minds to just about anything. Thank you for all of those recommendations. We'll have to check them out. And thank you so much for being on the show. It's been so amazing to learn from you, Soraya. If there's any social media or content you'd like to plug, this is your chance to let our listeners know where to find you. Oh, thank you. Um, my name is not phonetic. It's hard to spell, but it's S-O-R-A-Y-A. And my last name is D-A-R-A-B-I. So with that, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. Um, but LinkedIn is probably the best place to start. Perfect. Thank you so much, Soraya. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Tech and Color. If you're interested in following our journey and hearing from more leaders in tech and business, follow us on Instagram at Tech and Color Podcast, on Twitter at Tech and Color Cast, and on Spotify. We love to hear from listeners like you. So please reach out if you'd like to work with us.